0: It is a Saturday in CCO land and we have our bit of a wine chat with our friend Jack Farrell from Haskell's. Good morning, Jack. Hi there, Denny. How are you today? How are things this morning? Well, things on this end are pretty good and that weather looks mighty fine, too, I'll have you know. We're entitled. <laughs> yes, we are. I like that for sure. What are we going to be doing today? We're going to do one of my favorite things is answer some of these questions that pile up, that people cut up. Uh, listeners have about wine. And I thought I'd start with one uh, that bothered me a little bit. It said, why is French champagne so expensive? Well, let me start with one uh, that bothered me a little bit. It said, why is French champagne so expensive? Well, let me tell you. First and foremost, it's about a three-year process to get that champagne made and out to the public. So it it they have a lot of money tied up in those three years before it can be released. Secondly is a the champagne production method, Methodos Champignons, is uh a, you know about a seven step process. It takes a little longer. Uh, the good news is there's lots of wonderful sparkling wines out there that are very, very affordable. You know, starting with Italian Proseccos, which aren't made at all like Champagne, uh, but there's a little spritz in the, the wine, and people love them, and they've become very, very popular. Plus, Spain makes, you know, they, speaking of Champagne, the uh, Paris Treaty of 1911 gave the French the right to the word Champagne. The United States never recognized that, so we called all our sparkling wines in this country Champagne even though uh, most other countries were using other names. In Italy, it was Asti. Uh, In Spain, it was Cava, uh, etc., etc. But we continued to use the word champagne, as did, um, I might add, the Australians. However, then Moet and Chandon decided to invest in the Napa Valley in the early 70s, and they built a property called the Main Chandon to make sparkling wine. And it was really... Interesting at the time, what they were going to call it, and they indeed called it just sparkling wine. And uh, more and more people are getting more sophisticated. And French champagne is really kind of different. I, I know I'm going on and on to answer a simple question, but uh, the chalk in the ground in the area of Champagne is what really gives the champ the wine its distinctive flavor. The terroir, as the winemakers say, the earth uh is very chalky in fact it's the same chalk thing that makes the white cliffs of dover go all the way across uh the english channel and into france and uh, that chalkiness in my opinion is what gives french champagne this particular distinctiveness because a lot of good sparkling wine is made around the world and in my opinion there's nothing like real champagne, and I think it's because of that chalk in the uh, subsoil, uh, etc. and then the process itself. Another question came, how long can I keep wine? Well, that depends on the wine. Basically, most wine is made. In fact, 95% of the wine produced in the world is made to be drunk as soon as it's released. Uh, the other 5%, some of it can be aged for a long period of time fortified wines like port uh and some sherries will last almost indefinitely. Uh however a lot the average wine you know I often get calls from people my grandfather left a bottle of leaf brown milk and it's from 1938 is it any good no it's not. Uh most wines when they get that old are not any good and even the great wines that take bottle age seldom lasts that long but good thing to do if you have a, uh, the idea you want to tuck some wine away find a cool dark place in your house if you're in an apartment uh, a closet in the center of the house that's kind of dark uh, is a good place to keep wine whatever you do don't keep it on top of the refrigerator in the kitchen that's one of the hottest spots in the house and it will not benefit the wine at all uh are screw caps a good thing? I'd say yeah they are. Uh you know if, if we're looking at wines under $20 the screw cap is just fine. Uh the Stelvin caps, which are the screw caps for wine, uh, was a great breakthrough and uh it, it makes, you know, opening a bottle of wine very easy, etc. and and most inexpensive wines are really terrific with a screw cap. Uh, A cork finish is what people really want on their more expensive wines, in my opinion. I remember uh, a friend of mine had a winery called Plump Jack, and he sold a Cabernet for about $100 a bottle, and he thought he'd put a screw cap on it, and he did. And the sales of his $100 Plump Jack Cabernet just plummeted. Because people didn't want to pay a hundred dollars and then get a screw cap wine, a lot of that bias is changing, uh, and screw caps are a very acceptable thing, uh, even on a more expensive bottle of wine. I've had some thirty, forty dollars Chardonnays that have had screw caps that I found very, very good. Uh, when we, <coughs> want, how come some wines are labeled by the region and other by grape variety? Well. Basically, in Europe, they label all the wine by region, or had in the past. And in the New World, they began to label wine uh, by the name of the wine. That was a big move by Frank Sunmacher and Alexis Lepschien, who were a couple of pioneers in the fine wine business in the United States. And they actually lobbied all the wineries in California and got a great ally in Bob Mondavi, to change the labeling. You know, years ago, you'd get a jug of wine and it'd be called Chablis, and if it was red, it was called Burgundy. It didn't do any service to Chablis or Burgundy because they were both very inexpensive jug wines served, <coughs> excuse me, in half gallon jugs or gallon jugs. And that's been virtually eliminated these days. And like I said, the better wineries, starting with Mondavi, began to label their wines with the bridal Cabernet, Zinfandel, Merlot, etc. And uh, that's it's very popular. Uh, naming wines is sort of interesting because some wines are place named like Burgundy and Chianti. Those are actually places Champagne places. Then there's some wines that are fantasy names, like leaf raw milk, which means virgin mother's milk. Um, um, odd thing to think about. And some, uh, Italian wine called Est-Est-Est. Uh, those are, are fantasy names that uh, people came up with because the wine they thought was very interesting. But that's the uh, naming of wine. Basically, you have to learn a little bit of geography and uh It's really kind of simple when you stop and think about it. Uh, What's the best way to learn about wine? Well, in my opinion, get a corkscrew and start pulling some corks and then keep notes. And believe me, no one's going to read those notes but you. So make them so you can remember what they say. You don't have to look up any ontological dictionary for the complex words that are associated with a lot of wine tasting. You're the only one going to do it. And this is another one I get a lot of. I put ice in my wine. Is that terrible? If you put uh, salt in it, it isn't terrible. If if that's what you like, uh, you know, on a hot day, sometimes oh, the wine just isn't cold enough. A little, and you know, in Europe, they often dilute wine with water, uh, and that's all you're really doing by putting an ice cube in the wine is diluting it. You drop the alcohol a little bit, etc. Uh, I don't recommend it for everybody, but if you like wine with ice cubes in it, by all means go ahead and do it and don't feel self-conscious about it. It's how you like the wine. Uh, where does tannin come from in wine? Well, that's an, an easy question because it comes from two things. It comes from either the oak in the barrel or it comes from the skin and the pips, the seeds in the center of the grape. Uh, the uh, buttery and vanilla-y flavor that you often get, particularly in Chardonnays, comes from wood, oak wood. And uh, the, that hard tannin that leaves a pucker in your mouth often, that comes from the skins and the pips, uh, the seeds. And so there's two tannins, and the, if they're balanced right, that's what makes the wine taste so good. Uh What are legs in wine? Legs really don't mean anything. It tells you the alcohol content of the wine. If uh, you swirl the wine around and on the, the side of the glass, it's like a glycol goes up and down. If it's real skinny, it's low in alcohol. If it's real viscous and heavy, the wine is heavy in alcohol. And that's all legs mean. It isn't important. Ah, another favorite of mine. How come? the waiter hands me a cork cork every time I order a bottle of wine. Well, this is an old-time thing, and it has nothing to do with smelling the cork. You'd have to have a really bad bottle of wine or have a really remarkable sense of smell to be able to tell a bad bottle of wine from just uh, running that cork under your nose. The original reason for having the corks goes back to the turn of the last century in England, there were a lot of disre- disputa- disreputable wine merchants. And wine merchants, what they did was they would buy one kind of wine, say a barrel of Beaujolais, and then they'd label it a Morgan, Fleury, uh, Cote de Bonne, etc., etc., and then sell it at that higher level of price, even though the wine was a cheap one. Well, the French got on to this after a bit. They're a little slow catching up, but they caught up, and they granted the corks. And so the cork on a good bottle of wine usually will have uh, the name of the property on it, and sometimes even the vintage is on the cork. But the name of the property, so when they hand you the cork, it's to authenticate the wine that you had. Is the name on the cork the the, uh, same as the name on the wine bottle. And that's the reason, and it's a holdover from those days, because now even some good wines really don't put their name on the cork, but a lot do, Um, probably, if you're talking wines that are, say, over $50, almost everybody does. But on some of the lesser wines, they don't bother with that. Uh, I, I covered the one on affordable sparkling wines, Cava, is a great one from Spain. Uh, There's sparkling wines from everywhere in the world. Every wine producing area in the world produces some sparkling wine. And some of them are very good. I particularly like the Cremant de Bourgogne, which is sparkling wine from Burgundy in France. It, to me, is the closest to real French champagne. And it's usually uh, around a little under $20 for a good one. Uh, but it's worth the money, believe me, uh, to go out and get that. What is the proper temperature to serve wine at? Well, there again, uh, I think 65 for a red wine and 45 for white wine are really good temperatures to serve them at. Uh, you, your own personal taste may change a little bit. That's fine. But you see that that red wine is a little cooler. You know, when they take a bottle of wine out of a cellar, when they say cellar temperature, that cellar is usually uh, fifty-some degrees because uh, it's the temperature of Earth, uh, and so the wine is kept at that. And then they set it on the sideboard, and it come, raises the temperature a little better uh, and uh, a little bit, and it makes the wine a little better. So those two temperatures, to me, are ideal. Uh, or, or close to them. Uh, you certainly don't want to drink a red wine that's 80-some degrees, and the same thing is true with the white wine. wine. Uh, one thing I will say, if you have some wine and you're kind of concerned that it doesn't taste real good, get it real ice cold and serve it, because uh, you can't taste anything when it's that cold anyway. Uh, there are some myths that are attached to wine from around the world, uh one of them is the best wine they keep for themselves that's not true all the wineries i call on all over the world believe me they want to sell the best wine they want everybody to know they make this terrific wine and uh so that's a myth the other one is uh i get a headache is it from the histamines is it from the sulfites i don't know what you get your headache from But uh, both of those things can be managed. Histamines can be dissipated by, as can sulfites, by decanting the bottle a couple, three times. And the last question is, how do I store wine? Well, the enemy of wine is oxygen, air. So put the wine in a tight thing, even if you put it in a jar with the seal on it so there's not much air, the wine will last a bit. That's what light and air, oxygen, are the two enemies of wine after it's open. And if you put it in a dark place uh, where there aren't any bright lights and seal it so there's not much oxygen in, the wine will last a while. Right. Well, I know one place to get all the information and the good uh, and the goodies as well, and that's any Haskell's location. The folks at Haskell's love to talk about wine. They'll answer all these questions. Don't have to go to me because they know all this stuff and they're good at it. They, whatever, tell them what you're going to fix, and they'll pick a wine that will go very nicely with it. And best of all, they'll help you pick a wine that doesn't cost very much. There's a Haskell's near you where you can save big dollars on wine. Haskell's in Bloomington. There's a Haskell's in Excelsior. Faribault right off of 35 Haskell's near you where you can save big dollars on wine. Haskell's in Bloomington. There's a Haskell's in Excelsior. Faribault right off of 35 Maple Mabel Grove Supercellar is not to be missed. There's a Haskell's at Ridgedale. There's a Haskell's in downtown Minneapolis with free parking on Saturday and Sunday. Haskell's in Stillwater, White Bear Lake, St. Paul, Plymouth, and Woodbury, too. And if you can't come into Haskell's, go to Haskell's.com. And don't forget, we do deliver. Excellent. Jack, let's talk next week. You know, Denny, I'm going to look forward to that. Jack Farrell from Haskell's.